Hi, we're Happy Cabbage Analytics, and you're listening to The Capitol After Hours. Happy Cabbage is a data analytics company focused on empowering cannabis retailers to make data-driven decisions. On this podcast, we'll share unique industry insights, data that goes against the grain, and business solutions that have the power to transform your cannabis business. Welcome to uh, the uh, Cabbage Roll After Hours with uh, Happy Cabbage Analytics. Um, super After Hours. Super After Hours. This is one forty-one in the morning. You have myself. I'm Andrew Watson, the CEO uh, of um, Happy Cabbage, and Bobby, the CTO. Bobby, say hi. Hi. Is that what I am? The C- yeah. Okay. CTO. That makes yeah, sense. You are. You are the CTO. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby and I. Uh, we're t- we're talking cannabis. We're talking cannabis data, We're talking about cannabis analytics, cannabis insight. I guess 420 is coming up. Um, you know, understanding uh, COVID, coming, getting out of that, but a lot of people moved on to delivery, I guess. Um, Do you honestly think there's any future value to investing in projects that are geared towards retail only, like folks that are not even thinking about delivery? Yeah, I think that that's uh, the uh, billion-dollar question, right? Um, you know, I always tell retail operators, in so much as you have the opportunity to, to do delivery, there's no reason why you shouldn't in a lot of ways. I think there's a belief that delivery is a much lower margin. I think a lot of people think that, you know, with delivery, you have a lot more added costs that it's harder on the marketing expense side. You know, you have to you have to build an online presence. But I do think that the benefit of if you have a retail operation and you already have the physical space potentially and you already have the brand potentially and the awareness, like you're only going to get, you know, uh returns on top of that. Now, that's the question though is that like, you know, um on a unit economics basis Yes, like I would say a delivery hub, cheaper on the rent. I would say that a delivery driver in general, cheaper on the per unit costs. You do inherit vehicle costs that add up, but I do think on net rent plus bud tender costs are definitely lower than delivery unit economics, or at least on par. And then the biggest thing about delivery is ticket sizes are 2x, right? Uh, across our entire data, Is that uh, true? you know, yeah, what? yeah, across across about like you know, you know, at this point we have like forty odd delivery businesses we work with in California. The delivery, the ticket size is like ninety five dollars on average compared to like sixty dollars on average in store post tax numbers. Yeah, you know what I'm curious about. So it seems like, so I think it's it taking this comparison a little bit further. So right now it's a simple like delivery only versus retail only, and there's clear pros and cons to each, but what is the, um, is there an, uh, an outperformance that we see with organizations that have a strong retail presence and are able to execute on a delivery operation versus those that are delivery only? hundred percent, hundred percent. So there's a few folks we brought online recently into our tooling 
that uh, have very strong single store or multi store retail locations. Uh, I'm thinking of one of them down in uh, San Diego in particular, you know, where maybe their retail store is bringing in, you know, 300 tickets per day. And I would say that a strong performing retail in an urban center in California should be able to hit 300 tickets per day pushing it. I think in in pre-COVID times, I should say in pre-COVID times, they are hitting 700 deliveries per day on top of that. Yeah. Right. And I do think that it's it's because they had such a strong volume of people. I mean, it is very true that the retail clients that we work with have on net over a two year time period more unique consumers, but they have more one time consumers. Mm. Which means that if you have a strong retail presence, you're doing 300 walk-ins a day pre-COVID, then you have a huge amount of contacts, a huge amount of brand awareness in a population, which you can double down on to pivot into delivery. And I think we see a few folks who are very strong in doing that, and their delivery businesses are effectively uh, the size of their retail business, but you maybe wouldn't know it uh, off off the cuff. Yo, yo, um, and, and so to me, it's... I think that's a, a really strong hypothesis is, is that presence alone drives a lot of value. And so it, it drives like, um, you know, brand loyalty drives value in your delivery business. So I think retail, having retail operation is like super valuable in terms of the presence, but knowing that regardless of what you are, what type of mix you are, um, if you have any delivery at all, you need hubs, right? You just need delivery hubs. You need logistics around those hubs. Is there synergy that you drive from using your retail space as those hubs versus is there costs you're paying, overhead costs of maintaining just hubs without the retail component? I think so. I mean, the, the folks in San Francisco yeah. City that we work with, I mean, think of the rents and the ability to get zoned cannabis uh, warehouse space right it particularly in some place like san francisco city very difficult right if you already have a yeah. zoned retail space with good space to do delivery out back uh out of the warehouse or something like that or the store sorry the storage or the inventory room uh if you're able to maximize that space operationally i think you can get two for one bang for your buck and you can operate a sizable delivery business uh, uh business out the back i think folks are maybe sometimes not as creative as that. You know, they're not thinking about the fact that their single inventory uh, room can do both. Yeah. There's no reason why it can't do both. It's just your velocity of batches coming in from metric, logging them into metric, and then making sure that you're, you know, moving them into the correct place in your point of sale so that they're able to be live on a delivery menu. And then you just have delivery drivers come and go, and you got to make sure that, you know, you're targeting a correct number of delivery drivers per order per day so you don't have delivery drivers sitting in parking right that kind of stuff i think in and there's some folks in san francisco who are really successful with that i think yeah no absolutely i mean like it it just it seems like it's about velocity of stock like getting your stock out the door as fast as possible right that's like from a, a provider's point of view and like having the outlet of delivery within your organization um just as a whole another dimension to 
like the the operations you're able to optimize and the information you're able to take action on. So I I think it's like a super competitive advantage. Um, and you know I think it's important to note like you you are clearly very knowledgeable in your answers here, um, and it's coming from our data. Like we can put we can assign exact numbers to our discussion right now. Um, and I think we should, I think like maybe the first episode is a little bit too condensed, but I think we should talk about some interesting numbers. Yeah. I mean, I, we threw out a couple there, you know, I think, you know, number wise, again, a hundred dollars average ticket size post tax you can expect on the delivery side, which by the way, we don't think is a, is a function or caused by the nature of you know, people are ordering delivery, have a different mindset, right, uh, yeah. in terms of uh, ordering more. So there's a there's a belief that, okay, if they have a $100 ticket size, that must mean they're ordering less often. That is, that is not true. Yeah. There is not a distinct difference between order frequency, number of days between orders, between delivery dominant uh, clients of ours and retail dominant clients of ours. I mean, we're looking at average regular consumers are ordering 20 to 30 uh, days between order, right? Right. I, I mean, I think it's there's an economic theory that's like, that's point like on point with this conversation it's just so the misconception is that more uh, higher order size means less frequently they're purchasing right but like at this at the base case all it could mean is that a provider is matching better more optimally the utility of the consumer and the willingness of that consumer to spend for the utility that they want Right. So they're getting a better experience and you're going to pay for a better, if you're getting a good experience, you're going to pay for it. If you're not like, I do this constantly. If I go into any place and I'm trying out some weed because it's like not consistent or whatever, I'm not likely to spend all my money. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll go in with more money than I spend because there is the possibility that I'll discover something I know I'll love, but usually I don't. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'll posit a question back to you. Another tickets uh, ticket size trend we see is with COVID, a lot of folks started online uh, pickup, and we see similar ticket sizes between delivery and online pickup. Both of them involve ordering from normally the same online menu. That's you know iHeartJane, maybe it's Dutchy. They're browsing through an online menu that has a certain layout, and I think to your point potentially lets them find products that are more matched to their preference versus the current setup most in-store retailers have is you have to talk to a bud tender and the bud tender goes behind the counter and picks out the product right you don't really have that surfing mentality surfing knowledge and maybe that barrier to consumers exploring products seeing products um, understanding, you know, product information could be potentially limiting their ability to get matched with the correct product because oftentimes those bud tender decisions are not data driven. Whereas those online purchasing decisions, generally consumers are making data driven stuff. They can see, for example, more THC content percentages on the gummies. And they may be saying, oh, wow, like there's a sativa gummy with this percent and there's an indica gummy with this percent. 
I want to try both of them. Whereas in a bud tender conversation, yeah. they might not be led to attempt to try both of them. And I think that that contributes to why we see both with online and delivery pickup, higher ticket sizes. And it goes back to what you were saying in terms of people are looking for consistent experience. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of data and a lot of information to guarantee consumers get consistent experiences. Which is why we're spending a lot of time, as you know, <laughs> exploring this problem and trying to figure right. out how can we use the data to predict consumer experience and line up what we're offering consumers through text message marketing of what uh, products we're matching to which consumers, getting into more so understanding potentially inventory matching, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I play it back to you and, and ask you, what data do you use or what data do you think that we, we will find as we continue to explore our data set uh, that could actually help predict better consumer preference to that point? You know? Yeah. So this actually this this is a perfect segue into um, some some analyses that just started. Um, so I've been experimenting, and we've talked about this, so you, so you know this well. But I've been experimenting with um, identifying all possible um, pieces of information that a consumer can use at the purchase decision. So like THC content, THC versus CBD. Um, hybrid versus sativa versus indica, right? A lot of these are, are bullshit, but in aggregate, if you just dump all the possible, like call them variables that we consciously or unconsciously think about when we're buying, um, what combination of variables? So I assign preference across all these variables to every consumer in our data and I get a matrix, right? And I get basically ones and zeros indicating if a customer or a consumer has a profile of high THC uh, concentrates with a particular um, hybrid flower, right? That's one, one consumer's profile. What combination of these variables are empirically showing higher revenue generation? And, and revenue generation is a proxy for preference because we can make the assumption or at least the hypo the um the hypothesis that you're going to spend more money if you're me if you're getting your preferences met better yeah on any yeah. given yeah. purchase decision right and so like in in acted um in the large amount of the data we have we can start seeing correlations consistent like statistically significant correlations in certain profiles and higher dollars being spent yeah, and that's so. I want to come. I want to. I want to understand the effects of, like, which of these variables are actually driving more money. Yeah, and I think I think you keyed in on a couple really interesting things there. You know, one is there are certain variables that the consumer is exposed to actively. To your point, indica, hybrid, sativa, THC percent images of the product you know which we can yeah. use image recognition to start to identify certain images that are potentially influencing purchase behavior but then there's also the yeah. unobserved variables that consumers don't have access to to yeah. decide what to purchase right there these are the more qualitative variables which are like how good the high is right you know is this going to make me sleepy yes it says indica versus sativa but those are very broad and to your point not always predictable 
uh, qualities or, or things. And, you know, there's a lot of effort underway to try to get that data through reviews and surveys and, you know, using, you know, expert opinion and aggregating that kind of stuff. But I think there's a lot that we can infer, a lot we can know by focusing on that output and basically saying, hey, you know, we threw in a lot of variables, both observed that consumers can look at and unobserved that we just know from all these product attributes that we can infer from, honestly, a lot of the point of sale data. And then we can find those groupings of variables that are making consumers come back for that product over and over and over yeah. again. And it, it could be something like what bud tender they're buying from, honestly. You know, you know, it could be that personal relationships matter. Exactly. Personal, you know, consumer behavior is a really interesting thing because it's a huge field of study, right? And it's, it's economics, psychology, sociology, like uh, it spans a lot of people study this thing. And, And a lot of times, like what's interesting about it is there's patterns and trends that a lot of times are clear if you take a sort of high um if you have a if you have like a perspective on it that's like you're seeing a ton of um you're seeing like a hundred thousand consumer purchase purchases and you're able to see these trends whereas us individually when we go into a store over like let's say 10 different experiences we may not know consciously that the the five or six times we actually um got better products got products that met our preferences better we actually spent more it could be 20 percent more we may not you know we don't don't notice that as individuals but we see that like you know over a million customers that effect is is obvious it's interesting yeah and i think that you know i'm i'm about to say one i think that one problem with a lot of folks in the industry and when we're inventing technology and thinking of what to do here we base it a lot on our own personal anecdote, which unfortunately, you know, we as a population of people in the industry uh, are a very small subset of cannabis consumers. I mean, talking numbers on data, you know, a sample of just 20 odd dispensaries that we've profiled over the last three months, you know, we're looking at 150,000 unique people that have ordered, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, that. Exciting. That's, there's a lot of lot of people, right? And to think that we as industry experts through our own personal experiences can describe and understand why 150,000 people are purchasing cannabis is, I think, a little bit mis, uh, misguided on our part. <laughs> but that yeah. being said, you know, one anecdote I have personally on my experiences, you know, I did kind of stumble into a discovery of infused pre-rolls and I definitely do spend more revenue now on infused pre-rolls, right? I am willing to pay a premium for infused pre-rolls, but I still look for maybe the lowest price per THC that I can possibly get in bulk. Um, But, you know, that was a lot of just searching and matching on my part. That was a lot of just accidentally buying an infused pre-roll once and then realizing, whoa, like this is the experience that I've, I've been looking for. And now as a result, I order more frequently. I order more consistently. Right. And and I generate more revenue for the dispensaries I purchase from. Now, now you're you're lucky to, to um, have found a um, product you love that you can actually purchase over and over again. 
um, I'm thinking back to like early days of, of weed when it was just all about flour. You like you would be you. It's like hitting the lotto if you have two. If you have a fantastic experience on on the first day and you want to try to go back and get the same exact shit like a week later, two weeks later. Worst case is that you buy what is the same strain name from a different supplier, totally different weed. Best case, you hear that you know they have a consistent supplier, but they're sold out right now. Yeah. Like I'm thinking specifically, like you know, Girl Scout cookies is like a um, flagship product for Apothecarium, and and that's that strain has given me the most consistency in terms of the experience I can expect, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, like one out of every three times you walk into that store, or you order from them, they're out of that product. It's like it's the only consistent thing around town, and like everyone's trying to buy it. Well, what would you say then to everyone else who's advertising that they're selling Girl Scout cookies? Do you do you think that the apothecarium, whatever they're sourcing for Girl Scout cookies, also shout out to Heather, uh, buyer apothecarium, love you. Um, but um, you know what? Uh, yeah, what is that? Do you expect to get the same experience from a purchasing a strand advertises Girl Scout cookies with a completely different price, a completely different brand, completely different THC percent potentially advertised from a different delivery service? So I've, I've been burned too many times in terms of like, so I, so for background, like I think a lot about all these variables we've been talking about, like THC content, like, you know, the composition of like what we call um, sativa hybrid hybrid like sativa leaning hybrid, you know, et cetera. Cause I think, I think a lot of people, myself included have anxiety and are sensitive to a certain chemical composition have, you know, am I able to identify what that chemical composition is? No, unfortunately, because I haven't had enough samples that are with, with low variance and variation for me to be able to pinpoint even just personally over like say a thousand different trials which ones are actually the ones that I like? Um, the compositions are, are there's no standards, r- relatively speaking. There's like very minimal standards in terms of um, uh, product quality, quality assurance. Um, and so like, I haven't been successful. It, it speaks to why the Girl Scout cookies at Apothecarium is so in demand and so popular. It's like, they they have a relationship a strong relationship with a supplier that's able to produce great weed every time and they've just focused on that that's that name girl scout cookies and so like i always when i hear girl scout cookies i always think apothecarium when i hear it's girl scout cookies from someone else i'm like ah fuck it. it's just like they're just using the name Mm-hmm. Um, or like you know maybe less malicious. They're just they're they believe they they have a strain called Girl Scout cookies. I don't believe it's going to be the same experience as the one I expect from Apothecary. And I think that that's the beauty of data and our expertise in data and what kind of data we have right. is that we can discover what those quote unquote Girl Scout cookies are based on yeah. those consumer buying behaviors that are different than the other Girl Scout cookies. And so, right. And, and, and it's not, I like so that. we can say that we can say, Hey, this Girl Scout cookies, when people buy it, they come back this other one, when people, yeah. buy it, they don't come back. Yeah. 
Right. And, and so that's what's, what's, what's amazing. It's so we know that there's a set of properties that um, a, the grower of Girl Scout cookies at Apothecarium is able to produce to those, to those properties every time, very consistently. Right. And so they exist. Um, even though I, as an individual uh, consumer, can't identify the chemical composition that I, that is favorable to my anxiety. Um, me as a data scientist with access to a million data points, am able to see that in globally. Um, and if I have enough people who are validating my experience with the consistency from apothecarium, I can actually look at and identify like the, the composition that the properties that that supplier is striving to meet that is able to um, help them achieve consistency. Um, then, then the, you know, the next part, which is more exciting is how do we transfer what we've learned to make, um, um, make the industry just better for consumers? How do we transfer that learning to providers elsewhere, not just this, uh, apothecary, not just like individual retailers, but really like, how do we disseminate that so we can make an impact to, um, consumers, you know, across the industry? How can we, using data, objectively say this is the best Girl Scout cookies on the planet Earth? Yeah. Um, but that was uh, that was the Cabbage Roll After Hours with Bobby and Andrew. And we will see you next time. Shout out to our uh, loyal fans everywhere across the yeah, country. Yeah, shout out. Shout out. Um, follow us at Happy Cabbage Analytics underscores on Instagram. Follow us on LinkedIn. Twitter or website. We got a Twitter presence. You cause uh, an email me. Honestly, I'm always down <laughs> to hang. Okay. You Peace. have some some industry enemies on Twitter. Yeah, no, don't don't talk about my enemies. Don't talk about your. <laughs> <laughs> For more data insights and marketing solutions that will transform your cannabis business, join our mailing list. Visit us at happycabbage.io. Thank you.